Good morning, guys. Once you get up on your feet, find somebody, tell them good morning. In this time of desperation
Good morning. What a way to start. I love that. You know, uh, in, in liturgical settings and in the church past, uh, there were many creeds that you would, uh, you would declare to each other when you came together for worship, reminding each other of the core values of our faith. And, man, that is one of those. What a great song we believe. Well, it's good to see you. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. Uh, if you're watching on the Internet, we're glad to have you with us this morning. And, and uh, our hope and our prayer is that uh, you fall in love with Jesus having worshiped with us today. We are awfully, awfully glad that you're here. Uh, I want to take a moment to highlight a couple things in the worship guide. So if you're in this room, uh, open it. If you're on the Internet, by the way, you can actually go into the city and, and you can see these things. So you can check, check our website out and see upcoming events and activities. I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning to highlight these things. I want to mention, though, for those of you interested in going on a short-term mission trip, uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, there's an Amazon outreach meeting. Uh, that is the group we go with to Brazil. Uh, Pam and Kevin Hudson lead that trip, and they will be leading another one this summer. Uh, so tonight, 5 o'clock uh, in the gathering room. Uh, that's down the first hallway, first door to the right. And, uh, look, you're not signing up if you come to that meeting, but this is uh, information, how much it's going to cost, how you raise your money, all that excitement, what you do on the trip. So you want to make sure to check that out. Uh, I want you to... Uh, look in the worship guide for other stuff. There's Bible studies you want to be aware of, a new Bible study. Robert Grimes is going to uh, begin leading on March 13th, Sunday nights at 5 p.m. This is for men and women. It's a, a DVD series that many of you have gone through, but there's some new ones by Ray Vanderlaan, so the world may know. It takes you to the Middle East, uh, the Bible, the places of the Bible, uh, and, and, you, and, and just kind of teaches you faith lessons. It brings the scriptures to life. Great study if you've never done it. Uh, this is not just for men or for women. A lot of our Bible studies are that way. This is, this is for both. Uh, so please uh, take note of that. If you have questions, you can talk with Robert about that. The only other thing I want to highlight is that we have uh, in our worship guide each week, we put a prayer guide. And the reason we do that is so that you can be praying for each other. We've got a lot of folks hurting right now. And uh, so if you would take that uh, blue sheet this week and and put it on your, uh, on your dining table or wherever you uh, go or your refrigerator. And uh, make sure to remember our flock as they uh, struggle through some stuff and, and uh, that stuff is in there. So I'm going to ask our ushers at this time to come forward as we take our offering. Um, this is for those who attend here on a regular basis. If uh, this is your first time with us, we ask that you not give. We don't want you distracted by money. We're just glad you're here. And uh, our hope and our prayer is that, uh, that you will uh, fall in love with Jesus having been with us today. Um, and... Uh, we're just glad, like I said, we're glad you're here. We are uh, in a study of James, and uh, we're going to be in our second week of that study, and we're going to get all the way through verse 4 of chapter 1 today. So we're really moving. So uh, hold, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be great. Let's, uh, let's pray together and commit our day to the Lord. Father, we thank you. Uh, thank you that you have given us a reason to trust you. Thank you for our core values, that we believe in you. We believe that you came and you died for us. We believe that your Father is trustworthy when he says that he'll put our sin upon you. We believe that, uh, that you are coming again for us. You're not leaving us here. We believe all these things, and that gives us hope even in the mess that is life. And uh, it is our prayer, Father, this morning that our focus today would be completely on you, that we would be lifted up in our spirit and we would be encouraged today. There is certainly a lot of stuff going on in people's lives. Some people are doing great right now. Some people are struggling, but one thing is constant, and that is our Lord, our God, loves us. He died for us, and if we have accepted him, he sent his Holy Spirit to live within us, to strengthen us, encourage us. So I pray for that this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for how you sustain us financially and with people, and, and uh, we know you're going to continue to do that. Uh, thank you for those who will give this morning financially, and we pray you'd bless them and, and return to them as they have given. And, and uh, Lord, we'll make sure to use these monies for your glory. 
And uh, we commit our service to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Finds rest in God alone. Salvation comes from Him. He is my rock, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Oh, I am overwhelmed and I. Yeah. 
do this very often. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. Uh, we try not to manipulate you into uh, a response. Um, this chorus that we're about to sing uh, says, Holy, you are holy. Lord Almighty, God, you reign. Worthy, none more worthy. King of glory. God, you reign. And it kind of reminds me of Revelation. Um, it just talks about, you know, John getting that glimpse of, of heaven and, you know, the creatures and the angels and uh, the elders and just everybody. Uh, either standing or bowing or flying around the throne. I think just some songs, you know, you just it needs a response. And I, I hope that's okay. But uh, you guys are just, uh, just stay standing and just sing this with me.
Sometimes as we're singing and I, and I get to listen to you sing, I'm, I'm thinking of, think about the words. And I think, I think that last song, you have to ask yourself, worthy of what? What is he worthy of? What has he earned? What right has he earned in our lives? What, what right has he earned in your life this morning? What is he worthy of? It's so easy to sing a song that's beautiful and, and, and not really think about what we just sang. Um, worthy. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then uh, we'll jump into James 1. Father, it's so easy to come together as your children and, and celebrate you and sing songs and not really think about what the songwriter was challenging us with. Certainly, holy, holy, holy is found in the Scripture, and so is you are worthy. I think of uh, Revelation chapter 4 that says, worthy is, and 5, that says, worthy is the Lamb to unroll the scrolls. Worthy. And we come together and we say, worthy, worthy, worthy. What is it you're worthy of? That is a question we have to ask ourselves. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit that lives within your children would ask us that question. What am I worthy of in your life, Mark? What am I worthy of? Everything? Most things? Trust for eternity? Father, we are, uh, we are people living in a broken culture and a broken world. And everybody just wants peace. They just want peace to do their thing. And uh, we, we turn on the news and we hear our country feels like it's ripping apart and, and uh, we see our enemies are surrounding us and you hear preachers saying that one thing and some preachers saying another and it just seems like there's no firm foundation. But the church was never the firm foundation. This country was never the firm foundation. You are the mighty rock upon which we rest. That's what David said. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And as we take a, a few minutes here, Father, to look at your word, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully in the deepest places of our heart. We do love you. We just don't trust you. So help us with that. And thank you that our eternal destiny is not dependent upon us trusting you every moment of every day, that you trust us even when we don't trust you. We love you. Now help us like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. James 1.1 says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, Greetings. What, uh, what appears to be a simple greeting of this letter actually sets the context for what Jacob, or as we in Eng our English Bibles call him, James, who is probably the half-brother of Jesus, has to say to the believing Jews who now are scattered throughout the world. James identifies himself in this introduction as the slave of God, or what could have also been translated as the willing bondservant. Some of your Bibles translated as servant. 
The most accurate translation would be a willing bondservant. And he did this so that those reading or hearing this sermon-esque letter would understand that he's not instructing them to live in a way that he himself isn't living. That he's battling through these things and he's asking them to do what he is already in the process of doing so that they would understand. Within James' letter, and we talked about all this last week, within James' letter, there are 54 instructions in 104 verses. And it is written to, as I've already said, the believing Jews and those of us who are already part of God's family by Jesus' work on the cross. As we talked about last week, he says in five chapters at least 11 times, plus other references to the family of God, he calls them brothers and sisters. So he's trying to be clear throughout this letter that this is not a letter written to unbelievers, but it is a letter written to believers. That is, they or we who are positionally righteous, having been declared clean and right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We talked last week about what that's, that's called. We've, we've actually been talking for months now as we went through Romans. The theological term for that is imputed righteousness or declared righteousness. That is a gift that each and every child of God receives at the moment they accept Christ's salvation. This letter, these 54 instructions are written to believers, very important, to encourage us to put on practical righteousness like a new shirt or a robe. Practical. That's where the title comes from. Practical righteousness. We are declared righteous. Colossians 1 says we stand before him pure and holy. But now, this is written to encourage these Jewish Christians and us to live lives worthy of our calling, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. To point out a few areas of our lives that need attention, not so that we can become better Christians or more pure, but so that we can become we can be, see ourselves as not surrendered completely, as Romans 12, 2 says. So that we could live such good lives among the unbelievers, Peter says, that even though they accuse us of doing bad, they will glorify the Father on the day he returns. I want to be clear. This letter encourages God's kids to live by our new family values now that we've been adopted into a new family. And James spends these five chapters giving us real examples of what that looks like. James' first instructions to us aren't hard. They're not complicated or even, uh, even agree with. These, these few verses that we're going to get through together this morning, there's not a person in this room who wouldn't agree with the theory behind it. James 1-2 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, once again identifying us as the children of God, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And all God's people said, no, they didn't. <laughs> Not really. They said, yeah, right. I mean, I want you to think about what he's saying here. I mean, this is a real letter. Again, it's the Bible, so we say amen. That's what we do as Christians. But I want you to really think about this. What he is saying is, when your life stinks, consider it joy. <laughs> oh, yeah. What? And he's writing to the children of God. And so I want to begin by saying, if you are not God's kid, then the troubles in your life, well, short of driving you actually to God, the creator, the redeemer, the one who loves you, um, they are simply the depressing ebb and flow of life. This is not relevant for you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior, if you are not adopted into his family, and the fact is, you should not consider trials and tribulations and sickness and trouble to be, to be joy. Because the truth is, you need to live as long as you can. 
Your job is to do whatever it takes to feed your flesh so that you can have some sort of happiness before you die. YOLO is true for the, chi- for the person who's not a child of God. You only live once. The truth is, for the person who's not saved, and, that's not the pers- and that is not the person James is writing to, and there's a lot of confusion in the church. I want to be clear. Not every verse in the Bible applies to every person reading it. We make a lot of mistakes in the evangelical church of reading things that God promised to the nation of Israel all the time. And then we get frustrated when God doesn't fulfill his promise as promised us by a preacher. And that's because we didn't take into, context, didn't take into consideration the context. And if you go to James, if we continue through James and you don't understand the context of this letter, especially if you're not saved, then you will be frustrated. The Word of God is not a motivational book. It's not a self-help book. It's not for, it, doesn't, it does not bear the Protestant work ethic. God helps those who help themselves. That's not what it is. This is a book that introduces us to God. And for the children of God, it explains why we can have joy in the midst of trials. And, I, and, and it's really, really important this morning that you understand that if you are not God's child, in other words, if you have not by faith accepted God's offer to adopt you into his family through the blood of Christ, if you have not accepted his gift to forgive your sin, If you're still living in your sin, then the truth is you are as depressed and hopeless as you think, and probably more so. And my challenge with you this morning is to plead you to come to God. Because in coming to God, there is joy and hope even in the journey. There really is. Because you don't only live once. You get to live twice. You don't go around once. You go around twice. And this is the most difficult of the two lives. For the child of God, This is the closest thing to hell we will ever experience. For the person who is not saved and dies in their sin, this is as close to heaven as it will ever get. Those are facts. You may hate them, you may deny them, but facts are facts. May be inconvenient, but they're still facts. And this is the truth. You need Jesus. You need Jesus to take your sin away so that the Father's unchanging plan can be accomplished, and that is to adopt you into his family so that you can read the scriptures and find joy. Because for the child of God, trouble, any kind of trouble, the flow of life trouble, aging, sickness that comes with that, a car accident, God sent trouble, like Job. Things that God brings into our life, sometimes not even for our growth. Let me be clear. If you haven't read Job lately, and you think that the reason God did it was to teach Job a lesson, then you haven't read the first couple chapters. The reason God allowed Job to have his ten kids die and lose his wealth was for himself, to be glorified. To prove to Satan that there was a man who would trust him despite the fact of losing everything. Sometimes we like to tell each other happy lies that make us feel better, but the fact is, they're not true. And buying into a lie so that you feel better about it is foolishness. It's the ostrich. For the child of God, the flow of life trouble, the the trouble that comes because of the flow of life, the, the kind of trouble that comes because God has chosen to inflict on you tribulation for his own purposes, or self inflicted trouble, even self inflicted, the pain caused by personal choices, when you get lung cancer because you smoked for 40 years, when, uh, when you choose to be unfaithful to your spouse and it ends in divorce. When you tell your boss off and lose your job, self-inflicted wounds, those are all covered by this. 
This says, for the child of God, his first instruction is no matter what kind or its cause of trouble that you face, it is an opportunity for you to consider it as joyous. To which we ask, why? That is insane. A diagnosis with cancer is something in which I can find joy in? Finding out that I have rheumatoid arthritis really bad? To find out I was just unemployed or laid off because the company's moving out of the area? How can that be joy? I'm glad you asked. Because the very next verse answers that. Verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Faith is tested. Why is this a chance to grow? Why should there be joy? Because for God's kids, trials of any kind brings about maturity or endurance. The King James Version actually uses the word patience. The NIV says perseverance. You all know that the trials and tribulations teach us about ourselves, about God and others, but they mostly mostly teach us as God's kids to endure with full dependence and faith or slash trust in the God who saved us and owns us. Trouble grows us up as God's kids, which is what this was all about in the first place. I I want you to take a breath, and I want you to remember what this really was about to start with. In religious circles today, we talk a lot about it being saved from hell and judgment, and we should. That's a very significant step. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The problem is, we never seem to get beyond that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Well, let me show you what it's all about in Ephesians 1.5. I, I want you to remember this. God decided in advance to do what? To adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus Christ. That That, my brothers and sisters, is the plan. Jesus Christ coming, taking our sin so that we could go to be with him as opposed to being away from him in hell, was the plan. The plan was not to just save you from fire. The plan was not just to save you from judgment. The plan was so that God could be with you. He has chased you. He wants a relationship with you. This is so much greater than just being saved. This is about being God's kid. Now that you are saved and you understand that it's about adoption, it affects every part of our relationship with the Lord. This was about, this this Jesus thing, this salvation thing was always about God wanting a personal, intimate father-child relationship with you. Not merely keeping you from having to pay for your own sin, But now God wants so much more. This is such a missing point in our theology, in our brains. But I want to show you something. Moments after Adam and Eve clearly sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't eat from that tree. Eve walks over, she takes the fruit, says it was delicious, that it would make her wise. She takes, she gives to her husband, they eat. Moments after that, God comes to meet with them. Remember? But he doesn't come out of heaven on a cloud or on a white horse or with with lightning in his hand. Do you remember how he came? He came to walk with them in the cool of the day. He wanted to take a walk with his two precious children. After freeing the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery, 
He had Moses put a tent of prayer or conversation with God in the middle of the camp of the Jews so that he could be in their midst and they could come talk to him. The seven feasts of Israel are all celebrations of God's provision where they're supposed to eat fellowship with the Lord and each other. One week after the resurrection, Peter is denied Christ. The disciples don't really know what to do. They've seen him resurrected in moments and in time. They've seen the risen Lord. They're still not clear on it. They're out fishing, and Jesus goes to the shore in John, and he tells them to come into shore because he's cooking them breakfast. They're sitting around this fire, and Jesus has cooked them breakfast. And not once does he bring up Peter's denial. Not once does he bring up their hiding in the upper room. Not once does he bring up the fact that none of them went to the tomb. He just feeds them breakfast, and he asks them, do you love me? Why? Because God had taken care of their sin, and now he wants to walk with them. When we get to heaven, one of the very first things that we will do with our dad is enjoy what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as religious as that sounds growing up in churches that talk about that, I want you to understand that in Jewish tradition, sitting at a meal is an amazing, intimate thing. You sat on the floor. You remember at the upper room uh, that, that it said that one of Jesus' disciples rested against him. This is an intimate place where we talk about life and they share a meal with each other. It's close. That's what God wants to do with us almost instantly when we get to heaven, when he takes care of all this junk. We're going to have a meal. We're not going to have a worship service. We're not going to sit around and sing the hymns of the faith. We're not going to meet new people. We're going to sit at a big old table with our family and share a meal. And you remember this verse from Revelation 3.20 in a letter that Jesus wrote to the rebellious church of Laodicea. Look, now look, I know you know this voice, this verse. You've heard every evangelist use it. And it's in an angry tone. But I want you to think about what he's saying. After telling Laodicea that they, they don't even want his wealth, that they've rejected him, basically he calls them out because they said, hey, I want you to go on over to Smyrna. They need you more than us. We're rich. We've taken care of ministry. We got all this in the bag. Jesus then says, you need to buy for me gold refined by fire. You need persecution. You need to realize what's been done for you. But his conclusion is this. What's he asking them to do? I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, look at this. I'll come in and I'll tell you off. I'll do what your preacher does. I'm going to show you all the areas of your life that you fall short. It's not what he says. And we will share a meal together as friends. There's nobody like our God. I, I want to make it clear this morning, brothers and sisters, that there's not even a person like your God, not your daddy on the, in this world, not your physical mom, not your aunt or your grandma or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or, or, or your lover, your spouse. Nobody's like our God. He not only gets slapped in the face, but he keeps chasing you. Every time we choose sin over God, we're committing adultery. And God still loves us. He chases us. We don't understand that God's passion is not to keep us out of fire, but to get us close and share a meal and hang out and walk in the cool of the day. God doesn't want you saved. He wants you close. There's nobody like our God. And too often we go to the scriptures um, to learn doctrine and theology, doctrine and theology of the church. And what does God expect from us? All of that stuff revolves around the, the question of trust. And if I believe he's that good, it impacts how we interact. It impacts how we interact. If I believe that he is the 
best thing that ever happened to me, I'm going to stand close to him. If I believe that my biggest problem in life is not that I don't walk with God, but hell, then as soon as I get saved, I'm going to leave him alone. That's the problem with the church today. Many people came to Christ only to, not, to, to stay out of hell. It's the, it's the least bad thing of two options in eternity. And I think Christian television had added to that. We've talked about it. When I used to watch, and I haven't watched in a long time, but the TV, TBN studios, if that's what heaven looks like with purple and gold and chairs that aren't comfortable, I don't want to go there. That is not what Scripture says. Scri- I mean, let me get it right. If, if it's that or fire, I'm going there. But, but I'm, I'm going to have back problems. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our home. We have been adopted out of this life. Do you realize in New Testament times when you were adopted, you not only were adopted into a new family, but you gave up, excuse me, you gave up every right to your old family. You basically said, I am no longer a part of them from this moment on. You have no legal rights to their, their wealth, no legal rights to that family, no legal rights to be with them. I am now choosing this family over that family. This decision that brought you to Christ, brothers and sisters, was a decision about whose family you value more. And the problem is that too often we make this kind of a, hey, I'm saved. Now today I'll walk with God. And then tomorrow we say, I won't walk with God. Today I'll trust God because I got a new job that pays more. But when I'm diagnosed with a brain tumor, take it away. I'll make sure I tell everybody you took it away. We start bargaining. What if he wants you to die with a brain tumor? Ooh, that's not very encouraging. It is when you realize that the one who's in charge of your brain tumor really, really likes you. But he's got a plan and work that's going on around us that may cause us temporary discomfort, but will one day lead to an amazing eternity where the old order of things is done away with, where we never lose, and there's no more pain, and no more crying, and no more hunger. This is what we were adopted into, brothers and sisters. We were adopted out of this into that. But for a lot of us, we're trying to figure out how to have both. And you cannot have joy if you try to have both. If you say, I trust the Lord, that's why I asked during that song this morning, worthy of what? Well, he's worthy of saving my soul. That doesn't make any sense. When you say he's worthy, if you say he's holy, that means he's different. He's mature. He's complete. That's a different word. You can sing that all day. But if he's worthy, the question you have to answer is worthy of what? What is he worthy of in your life? Well, he's he's worthy of, of taking two hours on Sunday morning. Okay. What else is he worthy of? Well, he's worthy of 15 minutes in the morning of prayer. Okay. What else is he worthy of? Well, that's about all. What is he worthy of in your life? What is it right now that's, that's in your lap, that's in your heart, that's giving you that, that anxiety? Is he worthy of trust with that? Has he proven himself worthy? I mean, that's what this is all about. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you endure trouble. Worthy. This has always been about a relationship where God is seeking to be with us. He's chasing us, and he will do anything to grow us up and show us who he is. We forget. 
Remember, remember how Paul opened his letter in Romans 1.17? I'm not going to let you forget it because James and Romans fit really, really well together. Paul said this, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. Please notice that at the last sentence, it is through faith that a righteous person, in other words, this person he's talking about that has life is already righteous. If you want to know what life is, you're going to have to trust God. If you want that abundant life in John 10 that he said, uh, I have, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy, but I have come to give you an abundant life. If that's the kind of life you want, you're going to have to let go of control. We, not you. I'm a control freak just like you. I know, what, I know what a good life looks like as I define it. I know what it should. Everybody gives. Everybody's happy. Nobody ever complains. And when I make a mistake in theology, people giggle and go on. I became a controversial uh, person last week on the internet because I wore a NASCAR shirt, and there were people who didn't even hear the message who decided on Facebook that they did not like a pastor disparaging God like that. How sad. Is that what the church of body of Christ has become? First of all, you don't know our culture. You don't know the context of our church. And second of all, you probably should have listened to the message before you got critical. Because last week's shirt was not a NASCAR shirt. It was a new carpenter's way of fundraising. We're selling sponsorships. I mean, the, the truth is that we are so busy being critical about everybody else. And you know why? Because I think if everybody else does it the way I do it, then I'm comfortable and life will be better. How many times have you thought that if you haven't said it? If everybody, Julie and I joke about this all the time, we're not critical people. Let me just tell you. We are not. But we do have the answers to everybody's problems, okay? Okay. And there are times lately as we've grown in our relationship with the Lord, we'll be talking, and, and you don't even think about it. You know what I'm talking about? You just start going, oh, how can they do that? And all of a sudden, it'll get quiet in the car, and Julie will say, if they just would have asked us first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. We think we got the answers, and i got to tell you something. If we had the answers, we wouldn't be the mess we're in. The answer is Jesus despite the mess. Too many people are too many saved people now are going to God to remove the mess. This says, have joy in the mess. If you come from a tradition that says God doesn't want you to struggle, well, look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 13. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, Remember that God is teaching you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, and, and as he does all of his children, it actually means that you're an illegit you are illegitimate and you're, you are not really his child at all. Since we respected the earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our, of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. He disciplined, uh, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. This is so practical. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there is a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Trained. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. 
Why would God allow us pain, we ask? Or even cause it? I wouldn't do that for my own kids, God. Why would you do that? I can answer that. He's a better parent than you. If your goal as a parent was to make sure that your child lived pain-free, then you're by definition a lousy parent. I know it hurts. I got a 20-year-old son living alone in Chicago right now. And I want to make his life as easy as possible. That makes me, by definition, a bad parent. Because if my son graduates from Moody Bible Institute never struggling through classes with grades, if it's ministry at Wells High School, if he doesn't struggle with the, with the realities of life, what kind of shepherd is he going to be? What, what exciting things can he talk about? Some of you are aware that last year a guy pulled a gun on him. Many of you aren't aware of that. Well, that shook him up. It should have shaken him up. That's what happens. Nobody goes, oh, yeah, I had a gun pulled on me, unless you have a death wish. But now, Zach's going to find out if he belongs in Chicago. He's going to find out who's taking care of him. He's going to find out if it's worth the risk. If it's not, get a job somewhere else. This is a very risky life. And those of you who work somewhere else beside the church know a secret. It's not safe even out of ministry. Life is hard. It's scary, and we keep trying to make the world work for us when we are not any longer part of the world. We are ambassadors to a different king. This is why we as pastors should not be politically active. Because the minute I start telling you who to vote for and who not to vote for, you cease to look at God and hear the message of the Lord through me and you cease to evaluate how I think and why I choose one over the other. And that is none of your business because I'm fallen. My job is to point you to Him and us to Him. And right now, the church is pro-anti-Trump and Sanders and I haven't heard anybody willing to admit that they're a Hillary fan. But you got all these people around. You even, have, you even have a guy claiming to be God's man in the election. Very dangerous. Very dangerous because each of them can have a dozen pastors that are following them and telling you who to vote for. And the minute you do that, nobody's looking at Jesus. And that's just one example of what I believe the church has done to us for years and years and years. As it relates to slavery, as it relates to morality, the message of ambassadors to say that no matter what your sin, sexual or violence or white lies or self-righteousness, we are offering the opportunity for you to be forgiven and adopted. Well, what do I get if I do? You get a relationship with the king of the universe. Well, what do I get? Eternal life. Well, will my wife come back? Not necessarily. In fact, Jesus said, if you follow me, actually, I brought a sword. I'm going to separate husband and wife, father and daughter. Those are Jesus' words. You're being lied to all the time because people are trying to sell Christianity to you that is not biblical. What does biblical Christianity look like? Consider it joy. That's biblical Christianity. And this is so radical. 
the teachings of this. That there's a lot of theologians who think this book shouldn't even be in the New Testament. You know why? It doesn't fit, it doesn't fit their genre, their, their mantra. It doesn't fit their rhetoric. So what do we do when we don't like a book that doesn't fit our rhetoric? Apparently, we can remove it. This is tough. Dear brothers and sisters, James 1, 2 through 4 says, When trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know. Why? For you know, and you know this. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Verse 4. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, complete, and needing nothing. This text, I could have just read it. There's nothing new. There's nothing unique about it. It's not hard to understand. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, any kind, that covers everything on your heart today. When troubles of any kind come your way, put on joy. Not necessarily happiness. Put on joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Okay, God, I'm scared. I don't like this. I know, son. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put on joy. 
because I know you're growing me up. Verse 4, so let it grow. Instruction number one, let it grow. Find that your priority. More than comfort, more than peace. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. How badly do we wish to be what God knows we can be in this life? How badly? How serious are we about being more than simply saved and heaven-bound? How willing are we to trust that the one who saved us has a plan that is beyond our understanding and is the best in the end, even if it's not best for us in this life? How willing are we to be more about God's will on this planet than our own? How serious are we How seriously do we take the statement of Jesus that if we want to be his disciples, we have to put down our selfish ambition and pick up our cross and follow him? How serious are we about that? Do we really believe that this relationship with God is practical for this life, or is it it just something that we want to affect us 10 seconds after death? If you want what God really came to give you, intimacy with himself, and count it joy. Because God is growing us up. And to count the trials and tribulations of life joyous, that's what it looks like to be really free. You have been set free from your sin and its consequences outside of this life. Now, you have the opportunity to be set free by the anchor of fear and pain that this life brings by putting on joy. Exhortation number one, consider it all joy. Father God, we do love you and we are thankful that you saved us. But, We're having a hard time trusting you. And that's only because we don't really know you. We know about you. We've been told it by pastors our whole lives. We've heard evangelists tell us about you. We've been made promises that you didn't make. And so, as we look at our lives and we watch those promises fall through, we have learned that you can't be trusted the way we want to trust you. Because what we've done, Lord, is instead of having a relationship with you through Jesus and your Holy Spirit that lives within us, we have a relationship with you through the church and through pastors and through authors and musicians. When you wanted a relationship with us between you and us, that's why you gave us the Holy Spirit. That's why the temple of the Holy Spirit is in us. So that when trouble comes, We can run to you. We can run to you. And we can grow up. And we can fulfill your plan for us in the family business in this life. So my prayer for us this morning is that over the next week, maybe this afternoon, 
we will begin running to you instead of other people. We will run to you. Because that, you are the only one that gives hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please note the time. Bible study is going to start in 12 and 15 minutes. Yeah, miracles do happen. You listened fast today. <laughs> Enjoy your Sunday.